0: Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by the state historian at UConn-Hartford and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward. This episode celebrates the 100th anniversary of the most influential design school of the 20th century, the Bauhaus, and Connecticut's connection to it. Connecticut Explored's Mary Donahue and conceptual artist, photographer, and frequent Connecticut Explored contributor, Bob, Bob Gregson talk about pioneering modern artists Annie and Joseph Albers who escaped Nazi Germany in the 1930s and made New Haven their home in 1950 it's a remarkable story that attracted a standing room only crowd for Bob's talk at the New Haven Museum last February and be sure to stay tuned for our special Connecticut Explored subscription offer for grading the nutmeg listeners at the end of the episode
1: hi This is Mary Donahue for grading the Nutmeg. When we realized that it was the 100th anniversary of the founding of the Bauhaus, the most influential design school of the 20th century, we knew we had to see if there were any Connecticut connections. We were thrilled to discover that internationally famous artists Annie and Joseph Elbers had worked, taught, and lived in Connecticut. Frequent contributor Bob Gregson agreed to author a feature article about the Elbers in our winter 2018 issue. Bob is also an artist whose work encourages playful interaction. His work is in many private collections as well as museums, and he was the creative director for the Connecticut Commission on Culture and Tourism for 20 years. Bob also gave a lecture for us about the Elbers as a Connecticut-explored live event at the New Haven Museum. It was filled to capacity. Over 140 people came out, including neighbors of the Elbers, homeowners that had a fireplace designed by Joseph, former students, art collectors, and many fans of New Haven's significant modern art and architecture. Welcome to the podcast, Bob.
2: Hi, Mary. It's good to see you.
1: You know, tell us a little bit about your first interaction when you were a young artists working at a big gallery in New York with the Albers?
2: <laughs> well, you know I went to art school and I had a class with the Joseph Albers color course so I knew who Joseph Albers was and uh, after I graduated uh, from art school I was about 23 years old and I got a job at a prestigious gallery in New York called the Sydney Janis Gallery the first show I had to hang was Joseph Albers and if you've ever seen Joseph's work, it's very minimal and needs to be hung just so. So I was very um, concerned about making it just perfect. I hung it all up, and uh, out comes Sidney Janice. I'm 5'8", or at least I was. He's a little shorter than I am, and he says, You're, you, you hung them too low, hung them higher. So I hung them higher, and... Uh, At the openings, uh, uh, Joseph and Annie came, and the door of the elevator opens. And uh, Joseph, who was a master of color, was dressed in a gray suit, gray flannel suit and gray shirt. He had clear glasses on. He has his gray hair uh, parted to the side. So he was minimal as far as color goes. And uh, Annie had beiges on. She had white, and she had beige and khakis. So they came over, and they're very tiny, so all of us are looking up at these at, at this, these paintings. But it was such an exciting um, thrill to see them both, and and this was about 1970, and uh, Joseph died in 1976, so it just got to meet him at the end.
1: Why don't you tell us a little bit about them? Your lecture was so well attended, and so many people wanted to know about their beginnings in Europe.
2: You know, Joseph was born in Batrop, Germany, in 1888, he was actually born Franz Joseph Albers, and Joseph had the P H on it. So it's interesting that, it, that he was always called Joseph with the F on it. He grew up in a in a very artistic family. His father was a master designer, master craftsman, uh, would do faux finishes and did a lot of decorating things. So he's very accomplished, and uh, they were Catholic. Joseph's father wanted him to teach, and uh, Joseph, of course, ended up being a teacher. But they lived a very, very unassuming life. Whereas Annie, who was born 11 years later in 1899, actually Annie's name is Annalise Elsa Fleischman, and she grew up in a very wealthy house. She had two siblings, brother and a sister. And her parents were extremely wealthy. Her, her father was a furniture manufacturer. Her mother was uh, heir to a publishing dynasty. Uh, she was also an accomplished tennis player, supposedly. So they were a very high-powered family, and they they get, uh, gave Annie art lessons. And Annie was a rebellious child, and she she really was uh, she knew what she wanted to do, it seems, out of life. But they both were very different, and Annie's, course, background was Jewish. So you've got these two different people being attracted to each other. So Annie and Joseph met in 1922. Uh, Joseph was a member of the Bauhaus, and Annie wanted to go to art school. But she didn't want to go to one of these technical schools, these uh, where you just learn a skill. She wanted to do something more than that. So she was attracted to the Bauhaus. And uh, it took her, I think, two t- tries to get in. But she did, finally uh, was accepted and became a member of the Bauhaus.
1: Now, this is the 100th anniversary of the Bauhaus we were so excited that there's such a strong connect- connection to the Bauhaus. Could you explain what the Bauhaus was and what its philosophy was?
2: Well, first of all, one of the interesting things I, I, I was trying to find out what Bauhaus meant. i I kept seeing research, doing research on it and it meant beautiful building or it just didn't make sense to me. So I went back to uh, Walter Gropius, who was the essentially the founder. Of of the Bauhaus and really formed the idea of the Bauhaus, and he wrote that he wanted to do something similar to the uh, Bauhuts, I guess you'd say it, and these were uh, construction sheds that were on the sides of medieval buildings, and they housed all of the craftsmen building these cathedrals, I mean the stone cutters, the woodworkers, the glass, uh, uh, stained glass makers. They all worked in these huts. And he wanted to do kind of a modern Bauhut where uh, you, you have a school that is more like a workshop. Bauhaus was really a, a, an answer or a reaction to uh, Beaux-Arts way of teaching. Beaux-Arts was, was very uh, much about style whereas the Bauhaus was about ideas. Uh, you had this World War I where everybody wanted to take away uh, you know, all of the old and bring it to uh, you know, design, design things from the inside out again, rather than just create a superficial design. So, you know, chairs and furniture, it was all designed for a new world, a new way of looking, a new way of being.
1: Now, she goes as a student, and Joseph is there as a teacher. So how do they meet?
2: Well, originally, they were both students. In 1922, Annie, I think, was attracted to Joseph. Uh, and, And I got to meet Annie in the 80s. And she did say that they met, they would talk, they would share ideas, they would share their artwork. Then they started taking walks, and so this obviously grew into something more than that. And in nineteen twenty-five, uh, they got married. Also, Joseph became a teacher at that time, which was rare. And uh, students usually didn't become teachers, but Joseph was so talented that uh, and 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 so smart about teaching. They they made him a teacher. So Annie and Joseph were. Uh, lived in one of the masters' houses after nineteen twenty-five, but but I, I should go back a little bit about the, the the Bauhaus itself, the the structure. It was, as I said, a, an idea of Walter Gropius. Actually, uh, the uh, Weimar Republic wanted a school; they wanted more of a trade school, but Walter had m- bigger ideas. So they in Weimar, they, they, gave him, they gave them a building, an old commercial building, and they had the school there for uh, several years. But in 1925, they closed the school in Weimar, and Dessau decided, well, this is great. Well, let's have them come to Dessau and build it here. So they gave them the land, they gave them money to build the school uh, building. And what a, a, a coup for Walter Gropius, who was a terrific architect, to and also the director of the Bauhaus. He was the client as well as the architect, so he knew exactly what he wanted. So those buildings are absolutely magnificent, and they, they, they're spot-on for the uh, program that he was creating. And it was a collection of workshops. It had offices and auditorium, and uh, it had... Uh, a place for uh, dorms for students so it was a wonderful, wonderful complex. So in addition to this uh, the teachers had what they call master's houses I think there were three or four of them and they were these beautiful uh, about, uh, I want to say international style houses, very flat roofs and and they all all of the various uh, teachers would live in there
1: but tell me how Annie felt about that house.
2: She loved it. She absolutely adored living in it. Now, not everybody adored living in it. I mean, I think Mrs. Kandinsky wanted a certain stove, and so and so wanted this and that and the other thing. But but Annie uh, Annie loved loved living in the spare, minimalist uh, world that that the, she had become part of. Um, and of course, Joseph, because it was a workshop, Joseph was designing furniture. He was a, a glassmaker. So it had a lot of. I mean, it was a lot of things in that house that were there, part of their their life as an artist.
1: Who were some of the other teachers there? They're all super instrumental and important.
2: Well, oh, there was a lot. I have to say, first of all, Paul Clay was Annie's hero. She loved Paul Clay. Actually, a lot of people loved Paul Clay. He's very talented. Not only as an artist, but he cooked. He played the violin. So Annie, Annie was very um, uh, attracted to, uh, to, to him. There were a lot of different people who were there. Uh, Herbert Beyer, who was a wonderful graphic designer, and he actually invented new uh, type forms and uh, new ways of seeing graphics, and he used photography in a different, bold, new uh, way. Uh, Maholi Naj, who was a filmmaker, and he would create also these sculptures that would have light reflections on them. Uh, Oscar Schlemmer was the great uh, theater guy who would make these ballets. They would look like sculptures dancing, and uh, he he was a, he was marvelous. And of course, Wassily uh, Kandinsky, and Mies van der Rohe, and Marcel Breuer. So there were there was these incredibly important artists of the 20th century were part of this.
1: Obviously. It sounds like such a wonderful setting. It sounds like any country would be thrilled to have this collection of modern artists working in their country and spreading their art around the world. What happens to the Bauhaus?
2: In 1933, of course, there's a lot of political upheaval in Germany, a lot of complicated things going on. And of course, one of the things they didn't want was degenerate art. Uh, they didn't like the Bauhaus, and I think it's more complicated than the, just not liking the Bauhaus, but uh, because of politics. But
1: now, now, this is the Nazis.
2: These are the the Nazis. Uh, yes, these right. are the Nazis. And uh, in 1933, there was a lot of violence. Even the students at the Bauhaus were protesting things that were going on, and they decided the Nazis decided to close the Bauhaus in 1933. So, uh, and Mies van der Rohe actually wanted to uh, make the Bauhaus come alive again in an in a industrial building in Berlin, but that didn't, that was short-lived. So most of the teachers and students uh, fled, some stayed, but many of them came to America.
1: Tell us how, you know, Joseph is Catholic, Annie is Jewish by birth, how do they escape Germany?
2: Well, it's very interesting. Uh, 1933, uh, and Annie's told me that there was a lot of, it was a very violent time. They moved uh, to Char- Charlottenburg. They had a house. They did, they knew a lot of people. Actually, Philip Johnson, the uh, great architect and uh, curator at the Museum of Modern Art, had come to have tea with them. He was there to look at international style buildings for his exhibit. So uh, Philip Johnson knew them. And when Philip Johnson got back to the United States, uh, Edry Warburg, who was from the Warburg financial family and also a curator at the Museum of Modern Art, uh, asked Philip if he knew any art teachers for a new school in um, North Carolina uh, called Black Mountain College. And of course, Philip said, Annie and Joseph Halvers. So uh, Eddie paid for their trip and all their expenses to come to the United States. And all of a sudden, they show up in North Carolina, and there there's their new world.
1: So they're really out of harm's way. They're out of the clutches of the Nazis in Germany. They're in America. But uh, at that time, is what are they doing? Is Joseph teaching and Annie's doing her weaving?
2: Yes, yes, yes. Annie's Annie, of course, has become a a, a very talented weaver. And Joseph uh, is an incredible teacher. Uh, a little, little note about Annie's weaving. When she met, uh, joined the Bauhaus, there were all sorts of different workshops that you could be part of. And she said, well, I don't want to be part of the metal workshop because it's too sharp, and I don't want to do wall paintings because of the ladders and... She said, all that was left to her was was weaving, and she didn't think weaving was you know, terrific. So, but she took weaving on, and uh, I think, with all of the talent in the Bauhaus, she started to find new ways to define what textile is about. And she started to love weaving. So she did not go into weaving thinking that this is going to be the greatest thing in the world. So, uh, so that's a that's a little that's a little thing. But but uh, but Joseph was a teacher. The only problem going to North Carolina for Joseph was he couldn't speak English, <laughs> so he had to do he and and as a lot of his teaching, um, I've seen films of it, is very very uh, visual, and I think that, that that was probably his saving grace was that he was a very could make things visual visual rather than just use words.
1: Before we find out why the Elbers came to Connecticut, let's hear from Walt Woodward about an exciting new project.
0: I'm Walt Woodward. I want to tell you about a brand-new initiative by the Office of the State Historian and Connecticut Humanities. It's called Today in Connecticut History. Every day of the year at todayincthistory.com, we tell you about a fascinating, often little-known event that happened on that very day in the past. Today in cthistory.com provides an article, great images, and audio about the event from our daily WNPR broadcast. You can even subscribe to receive a morning email telling you what big event happened in this state on that date. This is your history, and it's worth knowing, and I hope you'll visit todayincthistory.com soon. Todayincthistory.com, because big things happen in this state on this date.
1: We know that they, they're teaching at Black Mountain College, they're visiting Mexico. How do they end up here in Connecticut at Yale?
2: Well, you know, Black Mountain College was very was very interesting, actually because you had the Bauhaus, which you know, was going to redefine society through art and design, and especially European society, which was well-entrenched. North Carolina was inventing a society. It was, America was still trying to figure out who it was going to be, and so that was, it was a very interesting a little change. So they were kind of inventing a culture. So it was very exciting there, and there was a lot of, again, students like Merce Cunningham or Robert Rauschenberg, all these, these people who became cultural icons for the uh, uh, here in America. They were all there, but uh, what happens is, and similar to the Bauhaus, there is this kind of swell of activity and excitement, and then it starts to become less creative and more institutionalized and at some point Annie and Joseph Albers decided no this is not for us where we want to leave and without having anything else to do uh, they left And 1949 was a big year for them they had left Joseph was doing residencies in various places around the United States and they took a trip or, or, or continued to take trips to Mexico which they loved I think they took 14 trips throughout their life and collected pre-Columbian art and, you know, loved the Mayan ruins. Very, very, it, it, it spoke to them in their own work. If you look at their work and you look at uh, the, the ruins, you can see uh, how they communicate with each other. But the interesting thing is that 1949, Annie is asked by Philip Johnson at the Museum of Modern Art to do a show. She does a one-woman show at the Museum of Modern Art on textiles, and that, I think, is a very important moment for her. Plus, Joseph gets an offer from Yale to be the head of the art department at Yale. So in 1950, they moved to Connecticut, uh, they moved to West Haven, and, uh, and they started a whole new life.
1: So it sounds like Annie's work was never overshadowed by her husband. Her husband's work.
2: No, that is something that is extremely important to know. I mean, I, there are a lot of artists and wives who work together. I mean, uh, I know Christo has his own uh, world, but but he, he shared it with Jean Claude. Uh, Klaus Olenberg uh, had uh, Koji Van Bruggen. They shared the creative life, whereas Joseph and Annie were. T- totally separate. They had their own creative worlds and were both very successful in them.
1: I was surprised at the kind of, or the architectural style, the type of house they bought in orange.
2: (laughs) Well, when they moved to uh, West Haven, they had a little Cape Cod. It was very simple, all painted white, you know, very, very modest. They were very modest. They did not they didn't like to have ostentatious things. So what happens is, is that uh, Joseph is not uh, has a lot of students, a lot of famous students, a lot of famous students who are becoming very wealthy. And Joseph, although well-respected and uh, regarded, was not making a great deal of money. All of a sudden, though, uh, in the 60s and the 70s, there, there was a show called The Responsive Eye of I, the Museum of Modern Art and he was part of that. And It was filled with all these younger people doing op art and color field paintings. But he became like the old master of them all and he, all of a sudden he started to sell his work for a lot more money and they had had some income, resources to buy a better house. So, <laughs> so they bought a house in orange and it was a raised ranch. They step up.
1: I find that so surprising.
2: (laughs) But yes and no. You know, there's something about the Bauhaus which wanted to have things that were just ordinary and uh, off the rack. They love Sears Roebuck, for example. They loved, uh, they like Formica. In fact, Joseph made some pieces in Formica. I mean, material-wise. Their house in orange is very interesting, and I, I got to visit that. And the kitchen was totally white. Everything in it—the counters, the chairs, cabinets—the uh, living room was totally white. Uh, simple, so uh, simple sofas. The only color in the living room was was a couple of paintings by Joseph Albers. Annie had no artwork in it, and she didn't like to show her artwork in it. So uh, that was very interesting. So, and then she had a little studio. She at that point she was in a wheelchair. She had a little studio, and um, she was doing print printmaking. She had stopped weaving about 1970, decided, oh, it's t- it just takes too much time. And so print making was her, her her final things.
1: Weren't there a lot of famous visitors at that oh. house?
2: <laughs> yes. Yes, there were a lot of I mean, Jackie Onassis came. Um, uh, Maximilian Schell came. Of course, Henry Gelzeller from the Museum of uh, the Metropolitan Museum came. There were a lot of very famous people. Of course, they, they were photographed by famous photographers: uh, Henry Cartier-Bresson, Hans Namuth. So they, they, they. A lot of people came to the, that that very simple house that they lived in.
1: Tell us a little bit about you. You, as an artist, uh, I think studied these and appreciate the Albert series, Joseph's series called "Homage to the Square." Tell us a little, just in a nutshell, what that theory was about.
2: Well, and Annie didn't get it quite at first. This is why they were two different people. But Joseph, Joseph's life, he wanted to uh, create artwork that was pure color. And uh, the homage to the square was trying to create the most minimal format in which to display color and let a color be the expressive part of the artwork. He was very good about he he, did, he taught called the, the uh, interaction of, of color. Uh, he did did this color theory, and, and and we we had to do it. And it's very hard to explain on a podcast, but there are ways in which you could take three colors and make them look like two colors, or two colors by and make them look like three colors. All about the relationship of colors, and that's what the. Squares were. They were relationships of colors. They were also never mixed colors. The, his paintings. He would scour the world for interesting uh, co- uh, tubes of paint, and he so he would use paint right out of the tube and with palette knife. And on the back of the paintings, he would write down the color, of the tube, the maker, and all that. So if we want to reproduce some Joseph Albers paintings. We're...
1: I think anybody who's ever gone to Home Depot and looked at all those paint chips that they have <laughs> can tell that if you put one green next to something else, it's going to look more yellow or it's going to look more blue. And when you're confronted by that many different color possible combinations, I can see where he was going with that. And what do you think the influence of that series was?
2: Certainly people started to... See color in a very different way, but his his the interesting thing about Joseph Haber is it was all about visual perception about things you know colors next to another color, but he also did other series of uh, line drawings uh, where you were they they almost tricked the eye. He he was he was interested in uh, the way human beings perceive things visually perceive things.
1: And didn't that have a big impact on subsequent artists? Just the big, field, big paintings in one color, for example, and some of the, as you said, the op art?
2: Oh, uh, well, obviously, yeah, Joseph had an enormous effect on a lot of artists. And uh, as I said, he, he taught a lot of them. You know, you've got somebody like Richard Aniskevich who uh, really owes a great deal of his career to Joseph's uh, teachings.
1: In their later years, how do they wind down a little bit?
2: Well, you know, Joseph died in 1976, and Annie was still going at that point. And so Annie without Joseph was was a very interesting thing because she uh, needed to protect his legacy. So Joseph dies in 1976, and Annie is there alone. They had already established, in 1971, the uh, Joseph and Annie Albers Foundation. So they were already preparing their legacy. They had uh, Nick Nick Weber, Nicholas Fox Weber, who's a wonderful historian, and he was a young kid, I guess, from Yale, and he uh, worked with them on, on the foundation, eventually became the director of the foundation. And uh, and a great friend of Annie and Joseph's, uh, and Annie Annie uh, lived an incredible rich life. I mean, after Joseph died, she had a she had shows. She had a show at the Renwick uh, in in Washington. She was actually in a movie, just a little part, but it was very funny. Her friend Maximilian Schell did a movie uh, uh, called Marlena. It was on Marlena Dietrich, and Annie appears in it. Uh, and she get, actually gets a film credit for it, but she uh, is there for the opening of the Joseph Albers Museum in Batrop. So she has an enormous amount of she 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 has a, a great life uh, after Joseph. Plus, she oversaw the the beginnings of the uh, you know foundation, which would eventually end up in Bethany, uh, which was designed by Tim Prentis, uh, who was a student of of Albers, of Joseph's, yeah, at Yale. So uh, she she lives until uh, she's 94 years old, and uh, uh, it, it's it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful, you know, wonderful life.
1: Tell us about how they picked out their cemetery plots. Uh.
2: This is kind of an unusual <laughs> story. It is, and I, I, I get this from uh, from Nick, or what I've read uh, that Nick Weber is. Said. He said they... Loved to drive. As a matter of fact when Joseph was able to make money they bought a green Mercedes. That was their only luxury. And they would drive in orange to the post road, go to the post office or do things and then they drive home. So they would drive by a cemetery and they decided that's where we're going to be. And they have two headstones, of course You know, rather than share one headstone, they each had to have their own. And their headstones are not facing the road where everybody else's are facing, but they're facing the side so that as you drive in, you actually can see the stone. It's right there. And they wanted that because they said, you know, if one of us dies and we have to go to the post office, we can go drive in and sit there and read our mail and be with the other one. So I thought it was a very sweet, sweet idea that.
1: It is a sweet idea. Everybody else is looking for some big green vista to <laughs> spend eternity with, but they're right there by the road, so they right. can be easily accessed. That's correct. Well, is there any other, uh, anything else you want to tell us about the Albers that particularly impressed you, Bob?
2: Well, there is. There's a great quote, and this is actually a quote from Annie, and uh, I, I love this. At the end of her life, she really had some strong feelings about about being an artist, and uh, when I visited her, I was able to get this quote from her, which I, I adore, and I'm gonna uh, read it. I've never called myself an artist. Joseph and I always felt that art is something you are aiming at, but you aren't an artist because of that. You do your work, whatever it is, and so he called himself a painter, and I called myself a weaver, but we never called ourselves artists. We thought that belonged to the gods.
1: Thank you so much.
2: Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening. We wish to thank Bob Gregson. For more information about the Albers, read Bob's feature story in the winter 2018-2019 issue of Connecticut Explored at ctexplored.org and for more about the Albers, go to the Joseph and Annie Albers Foundation's website at albersfoundation.org. For more about our guest, go to bobgregson.com. This episode was hosted and produced by Mary Donahue and engineered by Patrick Sullivan. And for more great Connecticut history stories, subscribe to Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history, at CTExplore.org. Through May 31st, 2019, for just $20, Grading the Nutmeg listeners receive six issues for the price of four with coupon code GTNSpring19. That's two free issues added to a one-year subscription with coupon code GTNSpring19 when you subscribe by May May 31st, 2019 at ctexploreorg shop. To hear more episodes of Grading the Nutmeg, subscribe on iTunes, iHeartRadio, Google Play, SoundCloud, or at gradingthenutmeg.libsyn.com. This is Walt Woodward, hoping you'll join us next time for another episode of Grading the Nutmeg.